You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Bob Wallace. Bob Wallace was a senior CIA officer at the time of his retirement. He had a varied background. He had been involved in both uh, operations as an operations officer. Uh, He had run a a variety of senior management jobs. But perhaps his most intriguing job, and that will be the subject today, was the period of time that he served as the director of the Office of Technical Services in CIA. He was, in effect, as James Bond fans would say, Q. Uh, he He didn't personally do that stuff in the lab, though he may have done some of it. But he oversaw the staff that did do it, directed them, and uh, perhaps one of his outstanding features as a manager was his his insistence on the technical people working side by side along with the operations officers. He and Keith Melton, a renowned uh, historian on uh, intelligence matters, have just published a book called Spycraft. It's put out by Dutton. And it's uh, Spycraft, The Secret History of the CIA's Spy Techs from Communism to Al-Qaeda. It is a remarkable book for the detail it gives on agency, the people in the agency, and a number of sensational, I'll use that word, operations that OTS was involved in throughout the years. Bob, welcome. Peter, it's a pleasure to be here. This is a remarkable uh, institution, uh, and I'm uh, pleased to be part of your your uh, podcast. Well, Bob, we're delighted to have you and Keith here to do a program. Uh, We've only got so much time, so let me just ask you, uh, having been the director of that service for some four years, from 98 to 2002, I think, in your view, how has the technical capability, that mission, changed over the years in CIA in direct support of operations? The Office of Technical Service, Peter, had a storied history, and rightly so, within the CIA. The office, the functions of the office were really established in 1951. So for more than 50 years, this has been the group of men and women, and really they are the cues of America, the men and women of OTS. So for more than 50 years, This office has focused on providing the most advanced technical support possible 
to our espionage operations worldwide. This has required us uh, not only to build cool gadgets, but to build cool gadgets that no one except the agent understands how cool they really are. <laughs> one of the great quotes from my colleagues uh, is this, the best work of OTS is never seen. That's a great, uh, uh, that's high praise from the officer you're talking about. It, it, certain, it certainly is. I, it was a personal privilege to be associated with this group, particularly since I'm not a technical guy. I'm an operations officer, and uh, people often wondered, I think, how did Bob Wallace get the best job in the Central Intelligence Agency? Uh, I'd like to say it had something to do with skill. I think more, it had more to do with timing, uh, my background, and uh, the, the leadership of the agency that uh, understood that, that uh, technical equipment uh, is useful only when it really works in the field. So the job that I had at OTS was to ensure that while we made neat things, we also made neat things that worked for agents and officers. Bob, let me just take you directly into the weeds. Can you give me an example of one of the coolest, neatest, uh, technically-based operations, let's say, or an operation involving technical capabilities that you remember from your tenure there? In the early 1970s, and you realize this was a time before iPods, even a time before Xerox machines. One of the major requirements for clandestine operations was copying documents, copying pieces of paper. How do you do that? We had no capability really to make copies of the secret documents that our agents got a hold of, hold up, except using 35 millimeter cameras. Now, Peter, you can imagine what might happen if one hauled a 35 millimeter camera into a secure facility inside a Russian embassy? There would be questions asked. Well, the solution was the T100 camera, a remarkable sub-miniature device, no larger than the end of your pinky finger, that was engineered by a very small American company specifically for clandestine use. We were able to conceal that camera in common objects such as a cricket cigarette lighter or a pen, a fountain pen. Both the cricket cigarette lighter and the fountain pen operated exactly as you would expect them to. You could write with the pen, you could light your cigarette with the cricket lighter. However, it also had the capability to take photographs, up to a hundred frames of images of pieces of paper could be taken with one roll of film by an agent and he could do that while he was under direct visual surveillance and the surveillance would never realize what was happening. Now that <clears throat> sort of high technology, if you will, has, and the fact you're able to talk about it indicates that it's no longer classified, passed into the commercial world. Uh, and there are things like rollover pens and so forth now available literally down, down at the corner at Radio Shack here. 
uh, might pay a high price for them, but they're available commercially. W- what are two or three other things that were developed by OTS that have now passed into commercial use? I think one of the neatest pieces of gear that OTS developed in its earliest years uh, was the reliable, safe, hot air balloon. OTS worked on hot air balloons in the early 1950s when at the time the CIA was looking for ways to infiltrate agents across the Iron Curtain into the Soviet Soviet countries, Soviet bloc countries. And uh, the the, uh, hot air balloon became one of those mechanisms. Well, in fact, the requirement for doing such infiltration really evaporated by the mid-1950s, but there was a whole industry of hot air balloon was spawned from that. And as I recall, didn't OTS, uh, weren't they behind that lithium battery that made its way into iPods and stuff we all carry around? One of the major challenges for audio surveillance, clandestine audio surveillance, is the power source. Big power sources don't lend themselves to being very clandestine. Small power sources don't lend themselves to very long life. So OTS in the 1960s, once the integrated circuit had been developed and was commercially available, began to create a series of audio transmitters, bugs if you will, electronic bugs, and make them very small. Integrated circuits allowed that miniaturization, but we needed the power. So the office experimented with a wide a range of chemistries. In fact, there was no chemistry that was uh, out of bounds for investigation, in, including some of the nuclear chemistries that that uh, that had uh, were emerging. So lithium, yes, lithium became one of the uh, chemistries that seemed to be or that proved to be very successful, both in terms of long life and reliability. One other comment on the battery business or the power sources, as we like to call it. Uh, the the power, power sources, uh, uh, because they needed uh, to be smaller and smaller, uh, could also be reduced in size if you reduced the electronic requirement or the electrical requirement of the device itself. So OD, OTS developed a whole series of, of power saver circuits that that actually reduced the uh, consumption of power by the listening device. So those those two together uh, worked uh, to uh, to solve the the audio uh, the clandestine audio problem. You know, during the the Cold War, certainly <clears throat> the principal adversary of the CIA was the KGB, the Soviet Intelligence Service, uh, and the GRU, its military uh, uh, the military. Uh, component of the uh, Soviet intelligence. You've had a chance now with the end of the Cold War, both to drawing on your experience as head of OTS and as an operations officer in CIA, you've had a chance working with Keith to look at the array of devices and technical capabilities the KGB created. Um, is, is, is there any way you could draw for us in a simple way some comparison between our approach and the KGB's approach and our success and their success. The KGB represented 
uh, a formidable intelligence adversary, and they devoted substantial attention and resources to their technical equipment. Uh, you will recall as recently as a few years ago, the Soviet intelligence service put a bug in the U.S. State Department, on the seventh floor of the U.S. State Department. A remarkable technical operation, as a, as a matter of fact. Now, the technology that was used in that particular bug, uh, we were a bit surprised because it tended, uh, it tended to appear to be 1980s, uh, late 1980s kind of technology. It didn't, didn't have the same, uh, I will use the word sophistication, not in a negative sense, but in a descriptive sense of some of the digital circuitries that we, we were aware of and, and we know, know that can be used. But the distinction I would draw between our equipment and the Soviet equipment uh, is less on the technical, uh, the elegance of technology than, on the, than uh, on the performance side. And in fact, the Soviets were very effective in terms of developing uh, audio and uh, covert communication systems that for the way they ran their agents, the way they conducted their operations, those were uh, excellent pieces of technical gear. The, uh, you know, I, I can't help but throw this in, but one of the questions that I run into, and I'm sure you do, is people are always asking, well, what about the movies or, or novels? But usually it's the movies. And, of course, we were all weaned on Mission Impossible, and now we're down through all of the Bond movies and so forth. And we're right down to Get Smart coming out again, as you know. Yes. Um, and people want to, always want to know, well, how real are the movies? Well, I do know there was a story that at one time, I understand, uh, when these spy movies began coming out, the KGB looked at them and assumed we had all that stuff and went back to their cues, if you will, and said, you've got to, you've got to do better. You've got to create what the Americans have. Um, I'd, I'd just enjoy your comment. Did we ever look, as we did, for example, in the case of Disguise, to Hollywood or, or, or call it popular culture, for ideas about technology? Imagination is the first requirement of great clandestine technical gear. When I was director of OTS, I said, and I didn't say this facetiously, that if a new Bond movie or other spy movie comes out, go to the movie, and uh, I consider it an official expense. <laughs> okay. Uh, in, in fact... Uh, the ideas that were were produced by Hollywood, uh, both for TV and and the movies, uh, frequently, uh, I'm using the word frequently. Yeah, I'll use that word. Uh, frequently uh, uh, inspired uh, the technical people to ask, "Hmm, can that be done?" For example, Maxwell Smart's shoe phone. Okay. Well, Maxwell Smart's shoe phone also was uh, the same device as the man from Uncle uh, Pen communicator. And uh, these, these uh, originally surfaced, I believe, in the 1960s in, in their TV series. But by the 1970s, OTS was working very seriously on what we call SHRAC, short-range agent communications. And these were systems that would allow an officer to communicate with his agent impersonally, 
at a distance of, oh, let's say 100 yards or maybe a meter. And this, this device that we describe in Spycraft called Buster, developed in the, again in the early 1970s, was in fact a primitive text messaging system. It didn't have voice at the time it was developed, but about 10 years later it did. You know, I, I know that the book that you and Keith Melton have done, Spycraft, um, you had to uh, get it approved by the uh, publications uh, board, review board at CIA. And I think those of us who've now looked at it are struck by the amount of detail that you're able to reveal, I think it's the only word to use, about both the internal uh, organization of OTS as well as a number of the technical operations and things that, that OTS was involved in. And, and here I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, I can only assume that since the agency allowed you to do this, that the development of OTS capabilities has gone on beyond what is revealed in this book. Uh, two responses to that, Peter. Uh, yes, I think that uh, you can rightly assume that the work that OTS is doing today is far beyond the technologies that are described in the book. Uh, in fact, that's part of the core mission of OTS is to, if not be in front of the technologies, be riding the crest of that wave as it comes through. There is no better piece of spy gear than one that is developed by a technology that your opposition doesn't realize you can do. I've said often that, particularly for those of us who are non-technical, when you walk through the OTS labs and talk with the engineers, you really get confused about whether you are seeing magic or whether you're just seeing great technology. <laughs> I, I know another hallmark of OTS and, and of the agency's op Office of, of Science and Technology uh, was the close relations that it did form uh, with some uh, uh, corporate, uh, industrial, private industry uh, components on the outside, and that that, that uh, relationship was extraordinarily productive during the Cold War. The actual structure of how uh, U.S. intelligence works with the private sector uh, was originated in the Second World War with OSS, and with the OSS head of research and development, um, a saucepan chemist by his own uh, t ter terms named Stanley Lovell from Boston. And the, the close relationship between the academic community and the commercial, the private sector community, uh, enabled the OSS R&D people to create all kinds of primarily weapons that were special weapons that were used during the Second World War. Uh, 20, 20 years later, when the CIA was more interested or more focused on collecting information than it was on lethal kind, kinds of equipment or paramilitary-related equipment, uh, we continued to work with, use the resources of the private sector. This contrasts with other countries, uh, such as the U.K. or, the, or the Russia, for that example, where they tend to do all of their espionage technical development with in-house laboratories, government laboratories. In America, we have 
turned and continue to turn to the private sector for both their imagination as well as their, their technical capability. Let me, uh, let me just turn to, to a last thing here, um, and that is I recall that, that OTS always had a, a wonderful mix of, of people with varied backgrounds, engineering, chemists, physicists, and so forth. And I can only assume that's still the case. Uh, a large part of, of our listeners uh, are, are, you know, folks who are still setting forth, looking to carve their careers, perhaps still in school in some cases, graduate school. What would you say, perhaps, to someone who is in a field, uh, engineering, chemistry, physics, or perhaps not even one of those fields, another field, about the prospects for them going into something like OTS in CIA? The breadth of the requirements for OTS technical and engineering officers goes, goes far beyond the standard uh, mechanical and electrical engineering. Quite, I guess, obviously, we would say, uh, you would think, oh, well, sure, computer engineers are in, in big demand these days. But, you know, materials engineers, uh, plastics people, uh, folks who understand woods, uh, people who can fabric, fabricate cabinet makers, uh, folks who do plastics, uh, folks, who, folks who do clothing, uh, uh, garments, uh, all, all of those craft skills as well as the basic engineering skills are in demand for the type of work that we are called on to do. Uh, so, uh, yeah, if, if one uh, wants to be a graphic designer, for example, what greater challenge can you have than to be a graphic designer that is reproducing the highest level security documents that are needed for our officers to travel safely uh, in alias uh, around the world. Well, I, I, and that does bring me to, to my last question. That is that, and we haven't touched on it, but the threat today is not, is not the KGB and, and Moscow so much as, as global terrorism. And uh, I would just wonder what your comment would be on the applicability uh, to the extent that you're aware of it of the OTS capabilities today in confronting terrorism? I think the picture for uh, OTS as well as for much of the, or for the U.S. intelligence community changed dramatically in 2001. Uh, in fact, there's a two, uh, there is a dual mission, a dual core mission now within OTS and the agency, and that is prosecuting the war against terrorism and sustaining the capability to run clandestine espionage operations. The uh, targets like uh, North Korea, uh, proliferation, uh, missile capabilities of, let's say, Iran, uh, the intent of, of uh, countries like China uh, or others around around the world, including the emerging Russia, uh, whose whose government uh, uh, continues to see the United States as a uh, as a place for for them to be very active in the intelligence business. Uh, uh, those those two missions are parallel. Some, somewhat distinct, but uh, 
OTS has to be able to address both of them. And so the, the technologies required to fight terrorism are sometimes a little different than the technologies required to conduct espionage, but OTS is one of those offices that the clandestine operators will continue to turn to to supply those needs. Well, I remember that well, an office very much with a can-do spirit. Bob, it's been just a, a delight to have you on today, and uh, certainly I wish uh, you and Keith every success with your book, Spycraft. Um, I think folks finding uh, your comments today interesting would find them greatly expanded and a lot of detail, particularly on the op side, uh, in the book. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation to be part of this. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org.